Hello and welcome back to the DialectsCon podcast where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sarah Shravastava and I'm your host. This week we're joined by Dr. Kevin Richardson, an assistant professor of philosophy at Duke University. Hi, Professor Richardson. How are you today? I'm doing great today. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Of course. And and thank you so much for your time and, and obviously being here today. Before we begin our discussion, I want to ask you, how did you get into philosophy? What interested you or what, what was interesting to you in philosophy and like what stood out to you? Thanks. Uh, I started as an English major, so I was really interested in literature. Um, and I was really interested in writing fiction. So I took the uh, creative fiction writing classes. And I slowly realized that I was more into the philosophy um, of the books, um, the, the philosophical ideas and themes of the literature than I was the actual literature. So I, you know, I looked at the English majors, uh, like what, what you have to do to get an English major and what you have to read. And I thought, definitely don't want to read that. That's one thing. And in my creative fiction writing classes, I remember one time a teacher said to me, you know, Kevin, your characters, they're just ideas, right? <laughs> they're not well-rounded. They're, they're just ideas. You're just writing, you know, these philosophical, these characters, but they don't, you know, they represent these big ideas. They don't actually, they're not actually relatable in a human way. And those, the, the kind of experience made me think, okay, yeah, actually philosophy is the thing that I may be interested in here. And so I, I, I pursued that. And I think I've always, yeah, question things growing up. I don't know exactly why I attended. I gravitated toward philosophy. So I grew up in a very small southern town in North Carolina with uh, about a thousand people, right, total. Um, and it's very cons conservative um, politically and socially. But for me, I was always yeah, questioning things um, despite people telling me to just leave it alone. And that, that just continued all throughout my undergraduate career and going into philosophy and it just you know now I'm now I'm here so that's a that's a short way to describe my trajectory I mean that's interesting I, I think like so I'm in I'm located in San Jose which is like a million people which is like quite the opposite experience that you had but still there's a lot of like questioning of practically everything nowadays um which is good in some ways sometimes it's not great because I feel like there's some things that could that you need to leave unquestioned um but at the same time like that's that's like a really interesting guy. And I think like like English to philosophy, there's like a lot of philosophy embedded in English. Like just I think I think that's a lot of ways, at least at a surface level, that's how a lot of high schoolers are interested or are in, uh, introduced to philosophy. Like they might not know it's philosophy per se, but like at least they're introduced to it through English, which I think is, is really great. Um, but you know, our topic today is is about social indeterminacy and ontological erasure, which sound like very, very big and like scary concepts for anyone listening. But I assure you, we're going to break it down today um, because they sound really, really cool. So to start off, what exactly is social indeterminacy? What is determinism and what is indeterminism? Because those are some terms I'm sure are going to be tossed around quite often in this podcast. So just to set the record straight, what, what are those? Thanks. Yeah, and th those are some big terms. We're going to keep it as straightforward as possible. So just to give an example of what I call social indeterminacy, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a uh, vagueness in the law. So a famous example of this uh, by 
a political theorist and philosopher, H.L.A. Hart, um, he considers um, a park, right, where there's a sign or there's a statue, right, there's a law that says no vehicles in the park, right? And there are clear cases of vehicles, right? There's, you know, the Mustang that you just bought or this motorcycle that you just bought. Yeah, those are, those are clearly vehicles. Um, the things that aren't vehicles like people, right? We, you know, okay, we can be in the park, right? But, you know, there are lots of cases that are, aren't really clear. So, you know, is a bike, when they say no vehicles in the park, do they mean a bicycle? Um, or maybe they do mean a bicycle, but well, what about an electric bicycle? Electric bicycle is kind of close to a motorcycle, isn't it? Or uh, what about, you know, scooters, electric scooters, um, skateboards? What about the sizes of them? So you start to run into situations where um, it seems like when these laws are created, they have certain paradigm cases where they determinately apply, as in the case of no, no vehicles, a car is determinately, right? Um, you know, a case of a vehicle. So, you know, it, it, the, the law rules it out. Um, and then there are other cases where it determinately doesn't apply. So uh, a person's not a vehicle. And so, yeah, it doesn't go into effect there. But one thing that legal theorists and philosophers have kind of pointed out is that there are these range, there's a range of cases where it's open-ended. And it seems like the meaning of the concept and the, the way the world is, it, it simply hasn't been determined by the law, right? The, the people, you know, however, whatever theory you have of how laws work and how they apply, there seems to be uh, a kind of gap, right? Between the determinate yes cases and determinate no cases. And that gap is what uh, I focus on, what I think about um, when I think about social indeterminacy. It's a case where because of the way we define the social world, um, things aren't things aren't fully determined. It's we don't have a complete characterization of uh, you know where things fall. Right? There's you know two categories: vehicle, non-vehicle. But we have these these in between cases. And then, okay, what do you say about those cases? So I can say more about the indeterminism and determinism language, but at first I want to see if, if, if that makes sense before kind of jumping into something else, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so from what I, from what I can tell, it seems almost as if like there are these hoops, right, where it's like, okay, there's either a yes or no, and they, there may be like specific cases that apply to produce a yes or specific cases that apply to produce a no. But if there are these cases that don't meet any of these criteria but still are placed as a yes or still are placed as a no, or maybe aren't even yes or no's, um, but those are like the cases that you're exploring, right? Um, those that don't fit into those, like those determinate yes or no like scenarios, right? Yes, yes. Uh, another example is just, um, you know, racial vagueness. So, you know, someone says, oh, you know, are you black? Well, I have two black parents, so I'm black. Okay, cool. Um, all right, well, what if one parent is black and another is white? You say, well, in America, people say, well, you're still black. If you have one black parent, you're black, you know, there you go. It's okay, fine. Well, okay, now you just keep adding, you keep changing the case. You think, well, what if you have one parent that's half black and half white, another that's white? And then you start to ask, okay, I'm, you know, are you are you black now? Because now you have a half or two parents, both of which are half black and half white. And then, okay, are you 
Do you end up being black by that? So you, you keep t- tweaking the cases, of course, you know, and I'm not trying to say this half language makes any sense, but I'm trying to get, you know, people get a sense of what I mean here, um, that at some point, you know, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a gap uh, in terms of, hey, this person isn't there, you know, it's not determinate that they are black, racially black. Um, it's not determinate that they're not racially black. Um, it seems like there's a there's indeterminacy here, right? There's a a lack of fact of the matter about what this person is or is not black. Um, and I think those kind of cases arise um, in 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 the case not just in the law, um, but they rise with race. Um, I would consider that a social case. I think they arise with gender um, and gender identity, and I think they arise with a sexual orientation. Um, and you know, for instance, you know, gender you may not you know, determinately fall within the boundaries of a man or a woman, right? And so then, you know, what do you do? How, how are, you know, how are you to be characterized in, in such cases? Now, the, the terminology of determinism and indeterminism, so that is tough. So I will say sometimes these terms are used to name very different philosophical uh, theories, right? These, these, these titles or these phrases are used to name very different philosophical theories. I think in the present context, um, it's useful to yeah think of the the contrast in terms of you know th- these yes no these uh, questions right that you might ask about you know individuals. So if you say if you ask the question for instance you know are you are you black right and racially black and there are two broad ways to approach that question, two broad ways to think about answers to that question. And one way is the way in which, one way is, look, there are only uh, two possible answers here, right? And it's either yes or no, right? It's, there's just a fact of the matter, either yes or no, right? And, it, you know, one of those answers has to be correct, right? That's, that's one stance. And that's, that would characterize someone who believes that the social world at least is fully determined. A race is fully determined. There's a, if you have that question, are you racially black? There's a, a yes, no answer. And those are the only answers, right? Um, and, and you have to fit into at least one, right? You, have to, you, you see the yes or no. But if you believe in uh, indeterminacy, then you may think the question, are you black, racially black? When asked of at least some individuals, um, there's not going to be a fact of the matter about what the answer is. So it's not that the person with half black, half white parent one and half black, half white parent two, it's not as if there's a a secret fact about whether they're black or not, that we're just trying, we're we're struggling to figure out, are they really, and we just fail. That's not what's going on. There's not a lack of knowledge here. Um, There's a, a lack of fact. Um, there just isn't anything um, that is going to decide the issue, right? Uh, it's it's very much like um, again, it, it's very much like um, cases of, of vagueness, right? And people ask questions about, okay, you know, how many, you know, if a if a person with fifty six hairs on their head, are they are they really are they bald, right? So, okay, what about fifty seven? Are they bald? Fifty eight, right? You ask these kinds of questions. At some point, you you'll say. I mean, there's no, no fact of the matter. I mean, it's it's indeterminate whether the person is bald or not because we're now in this zone, right? This middle ground, these, this gap that doesn't allow us to give a determined answer. 
Um, and so I, I think determinism and indeterminism, indeterminism in this context is just gonna be the contra contrast between how, between what types of answers you think these questions about social categories have. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Um, and I guess because this is really relevant as well right now, what exactly is the social then? Like when we're we talking about the social, are we talking about like the literal bonds that humans are like form as like a primal tendency? Or are we talking about some sort of political structure? I guess maybe politics and social are different, but like the social structure as a whole, um, what, what exactly is that social structure um, and the social? Like who does it include and who does it not include, sorry. Oh, no, yeah, so sorry about that. You, you, that's a very good question. And it's something that, you know, philosophers are trying to give, a, try to give definitions of is actually very tough. But I give some examples, though. Um, the social, as I understand it, it involves things like, um, basically, it involves people who are coming together in some way. So obvious case of this, laws are going to be social. Um, you know, culture is going to be something that's social. Institutions are social, right? Institutions, whether they're formal institutions like the government or they're informal institutions like family, right? The family is an institution in some sense. Um, those are examples of social things. Um, what wouldn't be an example of uh, something social? Um, I think, you know, one, just an individual uh, feeling however they might feel about about things. I mean, maybe this is contentious, but it's not social in the relevant, in the in the broad sense um, that, I, that I'm thinking about right now. And also, obviously, certain things wouldn't be social, like, um, you know, uh, at least not in the relevant sense. So, you know, rocks, for instance, they're not, they're not social beings, you know, rocks, they don't, they aren't animate. Um, and so they don't really count as social. Uh, and, you know, maybe some animals aren't really social creatures or isolated, you know, solitary creatures, but then maybe there's some definitely animals that could be considered social. So usually people don't talk as much about the, the animal case, um, how did I mention it? But, you know, th those are broadly speaking, you know, when I talk about social, I'm, 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 I'm being pretty broad here. I'm, I'm not, you know, being too specific, right? We just want to make a distinction between, you know, rocks and particles smashing each other at each other that aren't involving humans. And then, you know, institutions, social groups, social norms, and so on. Okay, so we're almost talking about like a bird's eye view of, of, of a lot of different things that happen in society, right? Um, is that like a good way to summarize it almost? Yeah, yeah. And then I think in my case, I think a lot about social identity to keep it more grounded. So things like race and gender and sexual orientation and gender presentation. So yeah, I focus mainly on those. Uh, social indeterminacy, though, is strictly speaking a broader idea. Okay. And so, and like in that, I guess, in that concept, is that like each person's, like when you're analyzing maybe like social identity, right? Is that each person's opinion all combined into like this one kind of social identity or opinion on social identity? Like, for example, like we're going to be talking about kind of, uh, or I guess problems with like biraciality um, in terms of how it's, how it's perceived, right? Um, are those things like a combination of a lot of different people's opinions on the matter or like how, I'm just trying to figure out how you can like call something to be the social norm or something like that like at what level can you classify that something is a norm or something is prevalent is it like more than 50 percent of these people believe a certain thing um do you kind of get what I'm trying to like say oh, how so you can you quantify that Right. So I think that, you know, when it comes to just to use a specific case, um, so what's the interaction between, you know, 
suppose you think about sexual orientation as something as an example of something social um, and how do you kind of define that, right? With, with respect to people's identities. So two quick things I would say is that um, first it's social just because, you know, you sexual orientation, you know, you have two people who are at least one person is oriented to another person in some sense, whether it's desire or, or um, you know, what kind of sexual behavior they may engage in. And so there's, you know, there's kind of relationships there that I would consider social, human social reaction uh, relationships. Um, so that's kind of a, a, but that's a kind of minor thing. The second thing I would say though uh, is, you know, it is tricky thinking about, you know, how to define these things because so in the sexual orientation case, and the reason why I use this case is, you know, people can be, you know, people arguably can be mistaken about their sexual orientation. Uh, so, you know, people might have, you know, you, you may kind of go, you know, go about in the world thinking that you are of one sexual orientation, um, but then come to find out if you really analyze the content of your desires or even your behavior, depending on however you define sexual orientation, you might discover that oh actually you know the things that I've told myself about myself aren't aren't true when it comes to my sexual orientation, and so in those cases you know it's tricky to theorize about because if you only use what people thought about themselves as input for your theory, then your theory would end up misclassifying a lot of people, or at least intuitively we think there's a a gap between the way people see themselves um, with respect to their sexual identity. And you know what they actually are, and the same you know same same case can be made of um, kind of racial case. Um, the gender case is more uh, controversial of, for various reasons, um, which we can get into. Uh, but I mean, in, in, even then, I mean, they're, they're yeah, the, the methodological questions are really really tough, and it's yeah, I, I can say more about them. But yeah, in, in general, what we're looking for is you know we're trying to find ways that do make sense of people's experiences, but without taking everyone's testimony um, on board, because then we're not gonna have any kind of way of wrangling in all of the, the intuitions and judgments people have. All right, yeah, I think that definitely makes sense and, and clears that up. And you kind of mentioned this briefly, like when we're talking about race and I guess um, a little bit about gender and sexuality, but why exactly does like social indeterminacy help capture those experiences that maybe a theory based on just like input uh, or like like people's input may not be able to classify like what what is the distinction here that we're able to to look at and actually like explain those experiences better hopefully yeah so we often use um binaries to make sense of social identities so the black white racial binary um, is one example, the heterosexual, homosexual kind of binary, man, woman. Um, in most of these, in many of these cases, the binaries are meant to be uh, either fundamental or kind of um, kind of exhausted, exhaustive. You fit into one or the other um, and exclusive. So you don't, you can't fit into both. Um, my claim is that a lot of identities are gonna end up being left out here if we use these binaries as being fundamental um, and our institutions and social norms don't know how to treat people with these identities, for instance. So let me give two, I'll start with two examples, right? So there was a guy who was robbing banks in LA. Um, it's very famous. He, he robbed like 30 banks. And people are trying to figure out who, who is this person? I mean, some people say, oh, he's Latino, he's Arab, he's Black, he's what? It turns out he, he was biracial. Um, 
it was this this biracial bank robber was off to people's off of people's radars. Why? Because people could not figure out how to categorize this individual using the black white binary. So in his case, it actually you know he lucked out because no one. I mean, eventually I think caught him, but for a while, I mean, he he was able to benefit from the fact that the way we categorize the, the way we pick out people, right, for something as important as criminal justice. Um, is going to depend on like these uh, these binary categories, but you know, and this leads to him not being identified. Um, and I think this is you know his invisibility here, his erasure here um, benefited him right uh, economically, but it's something that you don't might not want to build your entire you know you don't want to build your criminal justice system around. Uh, these assumptions, right? You have to, you know, insofar as you want to pick out certain individuals to hold them accountable, insofar as that's permissible, you want to be able to categorize people in a way that, you know, captures more of who they are. Um, Another case I think is worth, um, that I've been thinking about lately is um, when sexual orientation, there's a, Larry Craig was this former Republican U.S. Senator. And so he he was um, caught uh, soliciting sex from other man in the uh, uh, a, a public uh, an undercover cop right um uh, in some bathroom somewhere and, and he was like known as an anti-gay legislator um and you know when that incident happened um he he swore up and down he's straight he's not gay he's not gay the media right have had a view of his sexuality um which said that he was a hypocrite because well here's this anti-gay legislator who's secretly gay Right. And this is something the media portrayed it as, you know, he's a hypocrite and all this stuff. But, you know, one thing that some sexuality scholars uh, have thought about with this case is, you know, it's a very simplified view of sexuality. I mean, he might have been a little gay, um, for, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, there's not really using the categories of heterosexual and homosexual, gay and lesbian. Often there's certain, you know, there's a kind of spectrum of those certain uh, certain kinds of sexual behaviors and dispositions that aren't able to be captured um, using those two uh, those different categories. So you know, uh, and in the case of Larry Craig, the thought is okay, there might be a individual who's you know uh, they're mostly heterosexual um, in some sense. They're they're, they're mostly right um, uh, into or desiring um, the opposite sex or gender. Uh, but, you know, not fully. And, you know, there's a question, oh, well, do we just categorize those people as heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual? Um, and there's a lot of literature in the sexuality, uh, you know, research, which says like, no, it doesn't really capture their um, sexual orientation. You know, they, they, they do use different, um, they, they, use, they use, people want to use different classifications for you know, how they think about themselves and how to think about their sexual behavior, sexual orientation. Um, and so I think those are, there's, those are two cases where um, we see that, you know, if mixed race or multiracial, or if you have a, a sexuality that doesn't fit the heterosexual, homosexual kind of binary, you end up um, not being able to identify with society in certain ways. The institutions aren't built around your identities. They're built around uh, heterosexuality, homosexuality, and black and white, they're not built around this, the things that fall into the gaps, I say, or the things that I think 
are cases of social uh, indeterminacy. So, I, I mean, I think that that makes sense. And I, I will have some follow up questions kind of later about ways in which maybe like institutions can account for that variability almost. It seems like, um, I don't know, the way that I was interpreting this is like, you know, having a, a black and white binary seems like a gray scale, right? Like there's, you know, there's what, like on one end, there's white, on the other end, there's black. Um, but like in, in terms of like when you're thinking about like a rainbow, right? That That's a lot of different colors. And so to account for all of those colors would be quite difficult. But, um, you know, I, I think it, there could be some interesting questions, you know, later about how like institutions can address those things. But for now, I kind of want to focus on like how um, social indeterminacy is able to answer other philosophical questions around race and gender um, that, you know, may have not been explored or like cannot be answered by other sort of theories. Like what are those, um, those explanations or like those, those questions um, and why, why is it useful to even answer those questions with this theory? So I think if we think about the case of, um, oh yeah, both race and gender. So I think philosophers for a long time have tried to define race and what the races are. Um, so to try to define what's the, you know, what is it to be black? What is it to be white? What is it to be Asian? What is it to be indigenous? Um, uh, and, you know, they have then the same thing with gender. So what does it be a man? What does it be a woman, right? Mostly they've actually just asked the question, what does it be a man? What does it be a woman? They haven't considered kind of things like uh, kind of non-binary genders or gender queer or things like that. Um, and, they, and they've struggled, I think, um, to actually give determinate definitions of these, of these um, whether, whether they're race or their gender, um, and especially the, the challenge of defining what is a woman, right? That is, that has been a really big project that's been going on, um, you know, thinking about what, what, yeah, what exactly is the answer to that question? What is a woman? How do you define it? And I think one, and, and people have taken different stances. Um, a lot of people have given up on the project. And I think one way in which we have gone wrong is to assume that there's a fully determinate answer to some of these questions and to assume that, uh, yeah, we, we, we don't just have social indeterminacy in some of these cases. So for instance, I think, you know, one explanation of why it's so challenging to find an umbrella term woman that encompasses the diversity of, of, of like the diversity of women is that, you know, it may not be a fact of matter um, in many cases about whether someone is a woman, or it may not be a fact of matter about what we mean by woman. It just, you know, th there may not be productive things to say there. Um, and that's not, and that can sound like it's not a very happy conclusion um, to, to many people. Um, but I do think that understanding that will, I think, allow us to have a better appreciation of the the relevant uh, political terrain, and you know a lot of some and some of these philosophical theories that are concerned with defining race and the concerned with defining gender do have like political interests at the end of the day, and so I, I think it's something that could be helpful in in sorting out like why we failed and also how to move forward because some projects may not be productive. Right, I think that definitely makes sense, and um, you know. In terms of like those those projects that could be unproductive, I think there's 
um, some level of like ontological erasure in those projects. Um, and so I guess talking about that now, um, what exactly is ontological erasure? I know we've mentioned that at least like once in this podcast, but what is ontology and what is the differences or similarities between ontology and metaphysics? Um, because I know like those two fields can often be like very similar um, or at least interpreted at least in a, in a very similar way because one's like almost the nature of being and then one is about nature of stuff. So like, uh, could you explain the differences between that? Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll start with the ontological erasure and then get to the, the ontology and metaphysics um, question. So ontolo ontological erasure is what I, is my name for what happens when an institution wrongs you because your identity falls into the gaps of their classifications. So, you know, an example, I mean, a very simple example of this, it, ha it, it happened a lot back in the day. I don't know to what extent it still happens, but you know, um, when you're filling out your race on forms, um, uh, you know, you might, I mean, there are many cases where multiracial people, there simply is no box for them to check their race and they're not allowed to check multiple races. Um, and, you know, what that means is, you know, from, from you know, from a, a singular event of, checking a box, I mean, those boxes are extremely important um, at the end of the day, because our society is organized around where you fit, right, racially speaking. And if there's no place for people to fit racially speaking, then, you know, you're, you're, you're not, you're going to be not, not in a great position, right? And, and that's at an institutional level, but it's, it can also be right at a, just a social norms level where, you know, like the, the, again, the, the the biracial bank robber case is like kind of humorous in a certain way, but there's also, I mean, but there are many cases where, you know, people, multiracial people say, look, you know, you know, I was never treated fully a member of any, <laughs> of any particular community. And, you know, what does that, you know, how does that shape your, you know, it, it, it ends up in many cases shaping your life negatively. And I think, you know, what's, what's distinct of, again, ontological erasure is that you know institutions are built around these determinate identities, which it's a question of whether that's a good thing in the first place. But that's the case, and now you have an identity that doesn't fit, like in a fundamental way. Um, and so the way you're treated, I mean, you're just going to end up suffering as a consequence of this. And the same thing with you know women's colleges is a case I use in my paper, where you know things are better now for, by a long shot. Um, but, you know, when it comes to many people with trans identities or gender non-conforming identities who are trying to, you know, get into women's colleges, the colleges would, in some cases, they would outright exclude you, right? So that, that wouldn't be a case of erasure. It would be a case where I, I, I know, you know, I'm making a determined decision to exclude you here um, based on being trans or whatever, right? Uh, but in other cases, you know, there is this, they're just gaps, right? They didn't, they never thought about certain possibilities of gender um, when they formulated, right? We're having this women's college, you know, it broadly is, oh, it's a women's college. It is what it is. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, when you're at these colleges and you have these institutions that aren't built for your identity um, or don't try to accommodate your identity at all, well, you end up suffering or not even getting into these institutions as a result. 
Now, I, I call this ontological erasure because, well, let me take a step back. So uh, ont ontology and metaphysics are often distinguished in philosophy. Um, in this case, though, I am going to just, you know, just not distinguish them and say they're both about, um, they're both used to refer to the nature of reality in some way. I mean, ontology is usually meant to talk about existence more so, but, you know, in, in the case of ontolog ontological erasure and just the terminology I'm using, um, it's ontological erasure because it's it's a fact about the world. And that's one thing I want to emphasize. So, you know, it, it's it's not just, oh, well, people use words in ways that don't capture your identity or people use vague words, right? So that's one idea that you have. And look, people do use vague words, but what's distinctive about this is that there are consequences for, um, the worldly consequences for erasure, right? So people you know, who can't check a box for their race, um, now, you know, where, you know, certain, certain benefits are afforded to people on the basis of whether they check certain boxes, um, unfortunately, you know, like it or not in, in this society, either informally or formally. And so now, okay, there are worldly consequences. It's not just this linguistic thing. It's, you know, again, the, the case of, of colleges, it's, it's not just a linguistic thing. I mean, like how I'm getting treated is, is making, is, is, is up for grabs now. How my how how the admission process goes for me is going to be different because with the other women, they kind of have a determinate verdict um, uh, of whether to let them in because of their 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 gender identity. But with you, all of a sudden, there's a you know a trans woman or a woman who is not considered for whatever reason is seems um, different or falls in the gaps of these gender categories. Then it's oh well, it's a you know different process and maybe they get in, maybe they don't, but it's it's not the same kind of fair process that you would have had before. And even when you get into college, how are you treated? And that's a that's an entirely different question because now you have colleges that are, you know, they're, they're more accepting of, of trans women, uh, they accept they're trans women, but well, you know, when you get there, right, are you still, do you still have a college that's geared towards um, cis women entirely? Um, and now you've you had, but you've nonetheless admitted um, trans women. I mean, there, there are still cases where you can be erased, even erased at one level, even if you're not erased at another level. Okay, yeah, I think that that makes sense. And I have like two two quick follow-up questions. So first is um, on the level of like ontological erasure, um, is the scenario of like biological um, things to kind of restrict, I guess like, I don't know, the common example here right now and the very, very controversial one is of like trans athletes and the usage of biology to confirm or, or deny kind of trans athletes participating in specific events. So is that a form of ontological erasure? Uh, because at that level, I don't know if it is still in, inclined to be a social thing or would you consider it a social thing or would it still be like a, a, a super, super biological thing? And then second question is kind of about the ways in which ontological erasure affects the, the human or like the person being erased. Have you done some research there and when, what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so those are good questions. And I think first, you know, one distinction I do wanna make is that, you know, Erasure is distinct from what I call exclusion, 
And I think one thing we see now more publicly are instances of trans exclusion. So exclusion um, would be, I, I just watched this film, this horror film called uh, They Them, uh, <laughs> Kevin Bacon and and it's like a film where a bunch of LGBTQ and gender non-conforming people go to sexual orientation therapy camps, um, gay conversion camps, sadly. Um, and, but, but at these camps, their identities are very much visible and recognized. So the counselors recognize, yes, you are a trans woman, sure. Um, but they suffer because of their recognition. I mean, they do all sorts of, you know, spoiler alert, but it doesn't go well for um, the, the kids at this camp. Um, they suffer because of I'm, I'm recognizing who you are and I'm also saying, yeah, you you shouldn't be that way or you're not going to qualify for this. Um, so that's the case where institutions are actively targeting you on the basis of your identity. Erasure, however, it, it's it's not about kind of being actively targeted. It's about not being considered in a fundamental way. So cases of erasure, they're, they're often not as high profile as I think many of the cases that we see in public. So like the athlete case where they're making determined decisions. They say, oh, we got to define what a woman is by the biology or by the testosterone levels. And so let's define it so we can exclude certain people. Um, erasure is, is more so living in a kind of gray area um, when it comes to navigating these institutions that make gender or race or sexual orientation important, but you know you don't quite fit in the, the recognized categories. And so how you relate to the institution is, you know, it, it's up for grabs. You don't know what race or sexuality or gender to check on the form. Um, and the gender you check or race you check, it's gonna be pretty important. It's gonna determine where, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what dorms do you end up going to, right? Um, what what gender you you check, or even in some case with sexuality, um, and so you know the the cases we see now now say very quickly like there's a um, what what we see now is there's a, a recognition in, in one way of um, in, in in the case of trans people and 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 I think that's the biggest most public case I think um, there's a recognition that yeah oh okay these people exist but they shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's slightly different from kind of uh, erasure, but it, but it, it may be, yeah, they have some inter interesting interactions, but I'll, I'll stop there. Right, that makes sense. And, and I guess like um, that kind of answers the, the question I was about to ask about the ways in which that trans identity is ignored completely. Like that, I think distinction between exclusion and erasure kind of shows how trans identity is like almost ignored completely when and that creates uh like almost an erasure level at that point um and i guess i i do want to talk about the ways in which institutions uh can combat ontological erasure in a way because it seems that uh you know obviously we're talking about the nature of reality and, and and being but is there a way to change this for the future uh because you know obviously we know like historically that you know, trends have happened. We've been a lot, there's been like a rise for inclusion. Obviously we can still do a lot better, but what is that way to do better um, and almost like inject trans identity into the social? Um, although I'm sure that there's other ways to do it. And, you know, a lot of critical theorists have identified a lot of ways, but what is a strategy that maybe you have or, or identify as a, as a way to create more, I guess, inclusion almost here? 
Well, first, I would definitely point to there's been a lot of organizations been working for years to get like trans identities, uh, non-binary kind of identities in a broad sense to be recognized, um, particularly kind of gender and sexual orientation identities, um, you know, and, and identifying these gaps in the institutions. So I definitely think that, you know, uh, kind of doing supporting the work that they do because uh, I definitely don't have a immediate strategy that is more advanced than the things they've been thinking about I mean it's different in the case of mixed race multiracial people that's actually trickier in terms of there's actually reasons why people don't want to recognize um like uh you know uh people who are in the spectrum between white and black right um there's there's a lot of politics there and I can it's, it's interesting but you know long story short though I think one is supporting kind of Organizations really have better strategies th to give you than I do. The thing I can say, um, however, is that uh, fundamentally, um, I think change when it comes to ontological erasure in general um, is going to require us to, or one big part of it, we don't need to use race, gender, and sexual orientation categories as a basis for every, as a basis for all of social life, basically. I think the reason why erasure, one big reason why erasure is an issue is because it's important for an institution that you have a certain gender or that you have a certain social sexual orientation um, or even a certain race. But my claim is like, do, do, should we really organize society that way? And so one quick example of this is um, go to the grocery store and you go to like the toilet paper aisle and you see the wipes. I've seen now they have a uh, dude wipes. They have this whole branded dude wipes thing. And it's like a, you know, it's like a, or another thing like the, you know, you have the soap, the dove soap, and then you have dove soap for men, right? The dove soap, regular soap is white, right? And the white box, the dove soap for men is like a black box. The same thing with the dude wipes are like black, you know, and green and manly looking into the, and so this example, do we really need to, you know, bring gender presentation into every, aspect of life, going to the grocery store to get some toilet paper or wipes or soap. Why is this, why are these things being gendered? I think in general, that's the same thing about how to combat erasure and, and exclusion. Like, do we really need everything to, do we really need, you know, gender and sexuality and orientation to be, uh, you know, a, a reference point for these decisions, which seem like Completely independent. I mean, a man and a woman, they could both use the same soap. I mean, it's it's just the same soap with a different branding and maybe a different smell. You know, we don't necessarily need to have that division, however. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Um, and I guess there's a lot more, I guess, that we can do on the front lines too, which is about exactly about like the organization um, that are, are doing things. Um, do you have like any names of some of those organizations uh, for, for any students listening who might want to be interested? Um, if not, you can just maybe tell me like after the podcast and I can put that in the description. Yeah, um, let me let me let me give you the names uh, after after the podcast, because um, I don't want to miss any any great institutions and especially ones that I think are directly working on this issue as opposed to more general, I guess, issues in the vicinity of kind of sexual orientation and, and identity. So I just want to make sure. Okay, yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely. So I'll put a link in the description to a few organizations or however many uh, that have uh, or that are doing some good work. And if you're interested in helping out, then that would, that would definitely be the first step. Um, and I guess um, 
does ontological erasure also impact the way in which legislature uh, or like the social stratosphere handles issues overall? So like specifically here talking about the relationship between the social and the political and what that means in terms of, I guess, like ignorance at a large scale, for example. I mean, I don't really want to get into too much of like politics, but I know that like a lot of, I guess, rising, I guess, like Republicans from, from, from a lot of areas are using anti-trans or anti-gay um, or anti, you know, LGBTQ rights as, as a way of getting forward in, in the bid running or whatever it is. So is ontological erasure a, a reason for, uh, for, for, for why they're doing, being so successful? And, and what's the solution to that besides, I guess, these organizations? Is there like a philosophical reason for why this could be the place or something like that? Yeah, yeah. When I think about the at the political level, what's interesting to me is the interaction between what I've called exclusion and erasure, because in a way, so in my paper, I think I said like you know, in a way, on one hand, erasure can be you know pretty dangerous just because you know you're you're not being recognized and you're kind of at the whim of institutions. They don't have to really treat you fairly or systematically. You're constantly being you know, your needs are constantly not being net, met because institutions aren't built for you. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, with exclusion comes the kind of attacks that I think, you know, we're seeing today in a very high, in a, a very public, public way. So, you know, people are banning books, um, you know, that, that like uh, uh, books on being, being genderqueer or being non-binary um, because, you know, they, they're, explicitly recognizing that book as, oh, they're talking about these non-binary sexual orientations or genders, and they're saying, we have to stop that, right? So that, to me, that's a case of exclusion. But, but I think that at the political level, what we still have, I mean, outside of these public case, highly publicized case of exclusion, um, at, at the political level, I mean, what it means is, you know, we just don't have the uh, resources um, uh, interpretive resources to describe whole swaths of people. So multiracial people, I think, is a good example. I mean, there's, you know, what does one even say about, you know, I mean, multiracial itself is a huge, you know, it, it's a huge category to put place people in. Um, you know, if you look at the way that the United States, you know, classifies the races, you know, you, there's not too much wiggle room there. I mean, maybe, oh, you can check multiple boxes, but I mean, you know, the reality is everything is fundamentally based on those, the boxes that exist. And so there's nothing else to, to so, so when it comes to making policy, which is a big deal, um, okay, you, you kind of have to, you know, you, you basically end up ignoring these large swaths of people. And I think the same is gonna be true of sexual orientation um, and so I, it, it's, it's, I guess, I guess ontologically what has happened as a consequence of the political stuff is that, you know, we've created a world in which, you know, we, we have just, you know, we, we put certain individuals, uh, at a disadvantage because they fail to fit inside certain categories that we normally recognize. Um, and, and this is the, this is, yeah, ontologically, this is the situation that we're in, um, how to uh, change that? Again, I will say, you know, unfortunately, I'm not the the. <laughs> I, I I have been thinking. I actually I have been thinking a lot more about this um, recently. Um, but I, I you have to think more because uh, 
you know, you're going to need more than uh, you're, you're going to need more than education, I think, to um, defeat some of the forces that are allowing for ontological erasure and exclusion. So and that's that's very true, because the philosophy, if I could say, oh, well, we just educate people and everyone's that would be great if that was like the straightforward solution. But I suspect that more is going to be needed. So hopefully DialectsCon is the first step, at least for kids to get involved and, and like young students uh, so that they can spread the word about ontological erasure, because I think it's a really interesting concept. And once you kind of hear the point and like kind of like it's eye opening to see that, yeah, this is really a problem that's that's taking place. But, you know, we're kind of towards the end of the podcast. And I want to ask you what, what you're doing now, what your research is entailing um, and, you know, maybe audience members who are interested can, can follow up and, and read a little bit more about it. I'll also leave a link to your website in the description. Thanks. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot more. I, I think that, um, so of the, of the different social categories, race, gender, sexual orientation, I've been thinking the most lately about sexual orientation. Um, and I think I've been, I've been thinking a lot about um, this, this, the case I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, um, these kind of not what I call non-binary sexual orientations. Um, so not non-binary genders, but non-binary sexual orientations. That is, you know, you're not doesn't fit quite within the heterosexual, homosexual kind of paradigm. I mean, it's more into bisexual, but there's even diversity within that. So think about, okay, yeah, what you know, what about cases where a person's a little gay, a little gay, a little lesbian? Um, there's this phenomenon of straight girls kissing, is what you know. Sometimes so straight girls kissing is young women in college experimenting by curious people. Okay, what is that? Um, being heteroflexible, I just introduced, introduced that term, heteroflexible. It's like, well, with me, well, I'm heterosexual, but, I, but I'm flexible, you know? And thinking about sexual orientation as a coming in degrees, I think has been a, a, a recent project of mine. And I'm hoping to get some work out on that. Um, but yeah, you can look at my website. I'll have to, I'll put, put some of my, my papers they have updated. Sorry, uh, it should be updated by the time this comes out. Um, but yeah, I, you know, Definitely, and also feel free to kind of send me any emails if people want to talk. That would be great. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, there's so much. I mean, like I know maybe maybe it hasn't been completely updated yet, but like there's still a lot of stuff there uh, and some some cool research on the website. So um, I'll definitely link that down below. That about wraps up our discussion today. Thanks so much, Professor Richardson, for your time today. Um, I learned a lot about this really really cool concept, or I guess multiple concepts today. Um, and I'm sure our audience did as well. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks.